Well, good morning. Amen. Bless his holy name. Bless his holy name. I think another wonderful biblical synonym for the word holy is the word free. Free. He's free from sin. He's free from impurity. He's free from any kind of limitation that there could ever be upon us as humans. Lord, we bless your holy name. We bless you because you are free. When he fills us with his spirit, as he's promised that he wants to do as we trust him and receive him, that there's a measure of freedom, freedom and joy like we've, we've never known until we experience that kind of freedom. So well, that, that was free, that, that, that wasn't, that's not the, the point of the message necessarily this morning, but um, that's a truth. I, let me ask you this question. <clears throat> Have you ever met somebody, got to know somebody, and wondered how in the world they got themselves in such a mess? Huh? Or maybe you, maybe just stop a minute, back up, just kind of put it in park. How did I get myself in such a mess as this? Life down here is going to be full of opportunities, full of options to mess up. Jesus said, in this life, you're going to have hassles. You're going to have tribulation, pressures. But you be of good cheer because I've overcome the things that are working you over. I have overcome this world. There was um, a Catholic priest who lived many years ago. He wrote a poem at the end of the 16th century when the Counter-Reformation in the Catholic Church was underway in a response to the Protestant Reformation led by Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli and others. Within the Catholic Church, there was the recognition that there had been some excesses, there had been some, some failures morally and so forth. And so there arose within, within the Catholic Church a desire to set things right. One of, one of those who was a leader in Spain was a priest who was also a poet um, by the name of, they gave him the name John of the Cross. Later made him a saint. Church acknowledged certain things attributed to his life, and so they made him Saint John of the Cross. He wrote a poem the title of which has become very famous, but it actually wasn't the title of the poem. It was just a phrase in the poem, about a six-verse poem. The phrase that came to identify the poem was this, the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul. It has come to mean that season in a person's life where circumstances have come together with such force that that person enters into a season of emotional, spiritual darkness. 
the, the premise is the person enters in one way into that dark night of the soul but comes out the other side of it a better person, a different person, with some things having been jettisoned, left, and other things coming to be prominent in that person's life. The dark night of the soul. Have you ever had one of those? It could have been circumstances that were put upon you, the loss of a job or the the breakup of a family, um, something that was put upon you, or it could have been something that was a result of, of your own choices, own wrong choices, perhaps. The Scripture, as well as history, secular history, political history, international history, is, is rife with examples of great leaders, of great strong men and women who have at some season in their life undergone a dark night of the soul. Now, this is intended to be a hope-filled message, but in order for there to be hope, we've need to understand in some ways where there has been and how there has determined a season marked by hopelessness. One of my favorite American history characters is a man by the name of Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt, T.R. We sometimes refer to him around our house because he's quoted with some regularity. In 1884, on the same day, Teddy Roosevelt lost his wife, his young wife. He was a young man, young wife in childbirth, and his mother on exactly the same day. He lost his wife, and he lost his mother. He responded to that by disappearing for two years. He went to the Dakota Territory, the Badlands in the Dakota Territory, and he worked cattle, and he lived out in the open, camping and building fires and drinking out of streams and hunting wild game, big game. By the time that that he became the 26th president, of the United States of America a number of years later. He pointed back to those two years of his life as being to him indescribably formative and necessary in order for him to be prepared to step into what he would face as the President of the United States. Roosevelt's dark night of the soul. Lincoln historians have come up with a list of dates in the life of Abraham Lincoln that are known as Lincoln's failures. Lincoln's failures. In 1832, he lost his job 
and he was defeated for the Illinois State Legislature. In 1833, he failed in business, but in 1834, he was elected to the Illinois State Legislature. In 1835, his sweetheart died. In 1836, Abraham Lincoln had a documented nervous breakdown. In 1838, he was defeated for the Illinois Speaker of the House. In 1843, he was defeated for nomination to Congress. In 1846, he was elected to Congress. In 1848, he lost renomination to go to Congress. In 1854, he was defeated for the United States Senate, representing Illinois. In 1856, he was defeated for nomination to be the vice president, run for vice president of the U.S. In 1858, he was again defeated for the Senate. But in 1860, he was elected the 16th president of the United States of America. Here's what Lincoln commented, how he commented. It's not how many times you fall but how many times you get back up. The dark, the dark night of the soul wants to bury you. The dark night of the soul wants to define you. But by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit of the living Jesus, God will use the dark night of the soul to shape you into a champion to shape you and move you into the direction of greatness as he defines greatness. Amen. Now, with that being said, I I want us to, I want you to, if you would, follow me as we examine some of the early years, the early stages of one of the great Bible characters, one of the great men of the Bible. He was known as David, David the son of Jesse, David the eighth, the youngest of eight brothers. He was the one handpicked by the Lord to be the next king of Israel. He would be anointed by Samuel the prophet in the house of his father Jesse. And as the years would pass, he would be hated for that recognized anointing upon his life, particularly by Saul, the king whose place he would take. But the destiny that David had in the heart of God, in spite of the weaknesses of David, in spite of the humanity of David, in spite of the incredible darkness of his personal dark night of the soul, the destiny that God had for David would be fulfilled, would be completed. His, the promise of, of, of the Lord to David that, that his, his kingdom would have no end meant that as one of, the, one of the, the children, one of the offspring, a part of the lineage of David would be none other than Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus would be spoken of would be referenced as a son of David. Bartimaeus would cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. We we think of the great 
things about this man's life and what he, what he accomplished and how God called him and enabled him to do amazing things, starting out with, with the lion and the bear that prepared him for the nine-and-a-half-foot giant Goliath and all the way through to the establishing of the nation of Israel in prominence and in a sense of world renown. But there was that dark night of the soul in this man's life named David. A couple of things about that we need to understand. If great people are not immune to a dark night of the soul, ordinary people like you and me are not going to be immune to it either. A season when it can seem as if the things that had been fundamentally, foundationally established because of circumstances going on and pressures against us, the the doubts begin to flower. The hesitations and the questions begin to grow. Instead of the focus being where it needs to be on the Lord and the things of the Lord and what's right, some way or another, our gaze begins to shift into other places. We start drinking from other wells. We start listening to other counsel in the season of darkness. But hold on to this one, brothers and sisters. Romans 8.28 was written to help us understand seasons like that. And we know, Paul said, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. He doesn't cause all things. He is not the prime mover behind all things. He's just so big that even if there are things that he didn't cause, he has the ability to cause the cause to turn into something good for the child that he loves and the destiny and the purpose and the plan that he has for that life. So we look at David. We look at David. I I want you to notice this, and this is the Psalm number 40. This is one of David's psalms. I waited patiently or I waited longingly. I, I waited with great intensity for the Lord. And he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. Look at these words. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction. He brought me up out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. I got this new song coming out of the pit. I got this new song of praise unto the Lord that I didn't know before I got stuck in that miry clay and in that horrible pit. But as God has brought me out, he's given me a brand new song. He's given me a brand new song about his greatness and his goodness and his mercy and his power. And I'm going to tell folks about it. I'm going to sing that song because he has rescued me. Psalm 51 is a psalm that is 
is probably the greatest outpouring of a heart of someone who is on his way out of the dark night of the soul. We'll talk about how he may have gotten there, but Psalm 51 is how you get out of, how you, how you move through the dark night of the soul into the rest of your life. And David would cry out, create in me, that's Psalm 51.10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take away your Holy Spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me what it feels like to be rescued by you and sustain me with a willing spirit. David at this point in his life felt like that his, his heart was so dirty, his will was so weak, his, his emotions were so contaminated that he uses a verb for create that it, it, was, it was used to describe in Genesis chapter 1 about the Lord standing on the face of nothing and speaking out, and everything that came into being came into being out of nothing. It's that ex nihilo word, out of nothing. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. you you got to start completely over with me, Lord. My heart is so sick. My heart is so dirty. My heart is so devout. I don't even have any basic raw material to hand over to to ask you to clean that up and make a new heart out of that. It's a specific word that means, Lord, I need you to start from scratch. I need you to start all over with me. My heart, even the the best parts of my heart have been so defiled by the stuff that I've done, contaminated by the things that I've chosen, that I need for you to, out of nothing, as only you can do it, create a brand new heart in me. Oh, goodness. Now, that's... That's one of, this is one of the main characters in the Bible. Jesus is kin to David in an earthly sense. And he's a, here's a man who had to say, Lord, I'm so lost. I'm so dirty. I'm so defiled. And the word here, he'll use it to cleanse me from my iniquity. That means perversion. That means sicko, sicko, sicko to the toenails. Perversion. Debauchery. Lord, that's who I am. That's what I've given evidence of by the choices that I've made. I'm sick to the core. Cleanse me. This is David, who is also said to be described as the man after God's own heart. Now, folks, listen. If the man noted in Scripture as the one being after God's heart, then you and I need to open ourselves up to the reality that if those kinds of things can be can cause David to be a victim, if those kind of things can operate in a man like that, then who are we? Absolutely we can be prone to. But here, here's, here's a key. Here's a key. On the tail end of this dark night of the soul, David wasn't excusing what he did. He wasn't blaming what he did on somebody else. He was owning it. I chose it. I did it. And as a result of that, my heart 
my heart isn't even good for a revamp, not even for a, for a retooling. My, my heart needs to be completely made over brand new. Give to me a willing spirit, Lord. Give to me a, a, I'm all over the map in my choices. I'm all over the place in what I want to try to do, and then I can't finish. Give to me a steadfast spirit so I can lock on to that's what you call me to do, and I'll stay the course instead of turning aside. There's just hope all the way through this, that if this man who was known as a great man of God, a lover of the Lord, all the ways, all the days of his life except for this season, this dark night of the soul, when the choices were sorry, they were rotten to the bone, they were criminal in many cases. But even the other side of that, it, the, Lord, the Lord gave him his senses back. The Lord restored him again, and he went on to finish out his life. And he would, in Psalm 37, which is written at the end of David's life, here's what he says. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he will do it. Now, that, that's after the dark night of the soul. He's saying to us that even the, that the dark night of the soul and, the, and the, the failures and the struggles do not have to mean that for the rest of our lives we choose to live in a place that's displeasing to the Lord. We can step back into that walk. We can step back up on that high road, and the Lord will, the Lord will honor that. Delight yourself in the Lord. That wasn't written as David as a teenager. This was written as David, an admitted adulterer, stole another man's wife because he was king. He wanted her. I want her. He took her. She got pregnant. Then he started trying to implement this whole plan of how to get the soldier back to the battle to spend a night with his wife. So when she's announcing you're pregnant, well, they'll say, well, it was her husband. It wasn't the husband. It was David, the king. He stole her. He took her for himself, and then when, when his plan didn't work out, though he got her husband to come back from the battlefront, said to Uriah, go and assuming you go spend the night with his wife, he wouldn't go. The guy was so loyal to David, he slept at the doorstep of the king's house. When that didn't work, David tried again, said, well, if he could get him drunk, and then he'd go home. He wouldn't get, he got, he, he got a little tipsy, but he still didn't go home. So here this woman is pregnant, Uriah's wife, one of his most trusted, warring soldiers. And David had stolen the man's wife. And then when he couldn't get it to work out to where there would be an explanation for the pregnancy, he fell off the cliff. Where, where did this absence of, of, of morality and this absence of, of the sense of, of just caring for people, he hand wrote, David hand wrote a message to the general of the Israeli armies in the thick of a fight. Had Uriah the husband carry the message back to the general? And the message said, put Uriah in the thickest place of the fight and then withdraw so that Uriah will be killed. David premeditated the murder, the murder of the man whose wife he had stolen. You see, and we ought to say, 
Well, great Scott, how did he get to that place? This is the guy who wrote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. This is the one who wrote Psalm 27, though I'm in the place of great conflict and battle. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who, who fear him and delivers them. How did he get from there to this place of the dark night of the soul? Long before David walking around on the top of his palace, And he sees Bathsheba bathing and taking her, calling for her. And he said, who is that woman? And his people said, that's that's Bathsheba. They named her daddy and they named her husband. And David went after her anyway. I'm the king. I'll do what I want to do. And then when it came time he couldn't cover his tracks any other way, he resorted to murder. Doesn't that just, doesn't that just kind of make you shake your head? How, what in the world? We're not talking about a temporary lapse. We're talking about something of this, of this magnitude. Okay, now here's what I want to ask you to do. I, I want you to go with me to some more obscure passages describing the life of David and the circumstances around him. Let's look into how did he get to that place where his heart was so cold and so hardened and he had lost his direction. His true north was completely blown up, wandering around in a moral cesspool. How did he get there? Now, just stay with me. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel contain much of the life of David and the circumstances involved in his life. When we pick up in 1 Samuel 18, David has already killed Goliath. And as a result of that, he's he's acknowledged across the kingdom and by Saul the king in particular as, as a young man of bravery, a young man upon whom Blessing and favor seemed to be resting. So, so Saul invited David to be a part of his personal entourage, basically, in the, in the palace. Well, love happens. Romance flew through the window. Verse 20, now Michael, or Michelle, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul the thing was agreeable to him, skip over to verse 28. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. So Saul agreed for David to marry Michael, Michelle, That was a favorable proposition to him, thinking to link some connection and loyalty politically to David being a son-in-law. So they were married. The only challenge to that, check to that was, Saul attached a dowry to Michael that if you can come back with proof, David, that you have killed 300 Philistines, 
then you can marry my girl. Or a hundred Philistines. David goes out and, and not just the minimum, he does about three times that number to prove I want to be worthy of your daughter and I desire for her to be my wife. As the years passed, and we don't know how many years passed, it could have just been a few months, the hatred for Saul, from Saul to David built. It was like a volcano. It would erupt at times, then it would go back underground, then it would erupt at times. He, he eventually had to just leave, had to flee for his life. But when he left, he left Michael. He, he left her but with, within range of her daddy's desires. So deep was the hatred that Saul had for David. So much was he wanting him to be thrown out, having no connection anymore, that he required Michael to come back home, and then he gave Michael to another man. So not only is David running for his life, having to trust the Lord for food and water and shelter and protection, but now he gets word that this young woman whom he loved and she loved him had been forcefully given to another man to be his wife. Fast forward a number of years. Saul and Jonathan are killed on the mountains of Gilboa by the enemy. That meant that Saul was no longer the king. David's path to the throne would be clearer now. The only problem is that there were still some of Saul's family, some of his other sons, who wanted to be king. So there arose this season of a great division and great warfare between the house of David and the house of Saul. There were a couple of the tribes of Israel that wanted to immediately name David as the king. So he accepted their invitation and became king of a part of the the total Israeli domain in Hebron. He lived in Hebron for several years, about seven years. While Saul and Jonathan, they were gone, but there was this jockeying for power as to who was going to be the next overall ruler. David waiting for the timing of the Lord. He had six wives. He, he grew to have six wives in Hebrew. With each one of those women, he had at least one child in those years. But notice this. Abner, who had been one of Saul's generals, comes to David on the sly, and he says to David, if you will make a covenant with me, If you will agree to protect me, I will agree to do some things for you. I will deliver the other ten tribes, the rest of the kingdom, to you. If you will agree to protect me, if you will agree to to, uh, honor our agreement. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 12. Then Abner sent messengers to David in his place, saying, Whose is the land? Make, Make your covenant with me. And behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. And he said, David said, now watch this. David said, I will make a covenant with you. But I demand demand one thing of you. 
Namely, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, to whom I was betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. He already had six. He already had six wives and at least one child from each of those six. But there was something in David's heart, I believe, of an affection for, a love for, a loyalty to Michael that caused his desire for her to be at such a level that he was willing to risk, risk the allegiance of a potential ally from deeply embedded inside the opposition to come and help him by attaching one demand to his agreement. I want Michael back. They followed through, and she was returned to David. The plot thickens. David has made the king over all 12 tribes. All of the land of Israel is brought to him, and he he wears the crown as the king. Michael is a part of that entourage, that family of the king, along with the other other wives. And then this happens. This is 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 12. Now it was told King David saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. You remember the ark of God? The top of it is the solid gold cover, the mercy, the mercy seat, the angelic beings stretched across two of them with their wings pointed to each other. There's a gap in between the two. And that was where the Lord told Moses, I will meet with you between the wings of the cherubim. Underneath the the lid of the the mercy seat, the lid of the box, Aaron's rod that budded, the Ten Commandments, and, and some manna. It was the holiest piece of religious furniture, if you will, known to the Jewish people. It was the sense of that is where you find God on this earth. At once a year, the high priest would go in and make atonement for the sins of the people, sprinkling the blood of a sacrifice upon the mercy seat. Because there, there had been, the temple hadn't been built yet. That would be Solomon's duty. The, 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 the Ark of the Covenant was passed around and protected by different individuals. And the last one listed here was this man by the name of Obed-Edom. When David ascended the throne, and he got the right to do it. He said, I don't want the ark of God out in the country somewhere. I don't want it up under some tent with some tarp pulled across the top of it. That deserves to be that, that spot that marks the presence of, of Jehovah God on this earth needs to be right in the center of our city. We, I want the ark brought into Jerusalem, and we will build our lives around the sense of that thing, that place here in this spot. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David 
with gladness. David was just thrilled. He, he, he was beside himself on this great day. It was as if there is, they are bringing into the city the presence of God. That this is before the promise of it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There was a spot, and it wasn't inside people where the Spirit of the Lord dwelled. In these days, in the old covenant, it would be where the Ark of the Covenant was. And to have that brought in, just bless David. Verse 13, so it was that when the bearers of the Ark of the Lord had gone six paces, just taking six steps carrying the Ark, he sacrificed an entire ox and a fat one. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Now what that means is he didn't have anything on but a linen ephod. He, he, was, he was stripped to the waist in, a, in, in an expression of humility before the Lord, as if to say, Lord, I'm nothing without you. Take the crown, take the royal robes, I take it off. You get all the glory. You get all the praise. And he, his expression was to just wildly dance before the Lord, hopping and jumping and flailing and skipping, and who knows what all he was doing, like he had good sense, you know. Well, Amen. I realize that this, somewhere or another, that just kind of goes right over the top of the head. The king, the king carrying on like that? Well, so David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, Michael, the daughter of Saul, remember her, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord, set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it, and David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offering and peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts, and he distributed to all the people gifts, both to men and women. Verse 20. But when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. Dramatic pause. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. And I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. And then this verse 23 that speaks volumes. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. 
She ridiculed him. She mocked him. She showed no respect. Now, when you turn the page and you look at chapter or chapter eight and so forth, and you 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 move it on over into ten, you, you see that that in the middle of all of what was going on in David's life, he was a warrior. He was a commander of armies. There is one name after another name after another name of cities, of even surrounding countries that David and his armies conquered and brought into the rule of the people of Israel. There, there, were, there were numbers of city-states that were forced into subjection, uh, paying taxes and so forth back, back to, the, to the Jerusalem government uh, because of the conquest. They expanded the, the, the reach of Israel. It was one war after another war. It was one fight after another fight. That, now we're, we're moving up to chapter 11, and that's the description of David stealing Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, to be his own. What we're trying to do here is come to some kind of sense of how did David get there? How did David get to such a black hole where he lost the sense of decency, the lost the, the sense of what is right in the sight of God? How did he get there? I want to suggest to you two possible components. It's not an exhaustive list. We, we, we don't have this written. We just have written the record of of, of how he was beginning to get out of it and how the Lord would rescue him. But I would suggest one thing, at least one part, that sense of the loss of respect from Michael, his wife. It was as if she was saying to him, you don't have what it takes to be king. You're not qualified. You're not capable. Otherwise, you wouldn't have embarrassed the world. You wouldn't have embarrassed me by your behavior. Little did she know that his relationship to his God, his dependency upon the provision and favor of the Lord was infinitely more important to him than was her attitude toward him. So if she was going to force him to make a choice, he would choose the favor of the Lord rather than her favor. To say that, though, is not to minimize the human part of that. I tried to read those earlier places. Michael loved David, and David was willing to risk his life to win her, to have her as his wife. Then when the first thing he had wanted to do when he had opportunity to get her back was to impose authority and to have her back. He cared about her. There was something about her that caused her to, to in his estimation, evidently to rise above at least the other six he had at that time. And for her to show him that level of disrespect, I just have a sense that that bothered him. On, on the, you, you, look, you read that chapter 11, verse 1, um, 
go ahead and find that with me. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of, of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from there, from, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Why, why was he getting, leaving a bedroom and going up and walking around? There was, could, could it have been, could it have been that there was some dimension of this, the sadness in his heart, the, the frustration, even the anger in his heart, that, that, that why, why wouldn't she, why wouldn't Micah respect me from the standpoint of I'm the one who, who have given her a place to be. She's now, she's now a part of a king's household. She, she, her, her father's dead and gone. Why, why wouldn't there be a respect? Why wouldn't there be a pre- appreciation? I, I, I want to just throw this in, and, I, and, and you know, again, and I'm going I'm to deal with the, with, with the men here immediately. But Paul will say in Ephesians that there's one thing a man wants in a marriage. There's one thing a woman wants in a marriage, universal. The man wants his wife to respect him. Wives, you respect, you honor, you respect your wife as you would the Lord. But then he makes this amazing statement to the men, referencing what women want the most. And it is that they are cared for, that they are cherished, that they are loved. And they're not way down the list somewhere. If a husband has to make a choice, he chooses her. And the woman's words, the woman's attitudes are words of respect. I just want to say to you folks, that is a, that, that is a statement of one of the laws of heaven, one of the rules of, of how God set things, sets things up and how he wired men and women. You will not break that rule. That rule will break you. If I think that I can have a marriage and, I, and, and talk any way, ridicule a husband, or I can live in such a way that my wife always wonders how far up on the totem pole she really is. We had one of our, our brothers, Gordon Barnett, years ago. Many of you had this happen to him. He, he, he spared, he, he took no prisoners. He, he, he would come straight to the, to the pastor and say, Pastor, I want to challenge you. Are you a man of courage? Do you have guts? I want to challenge you to do something if you're as brave as, as, as maybe I hope you would be. I want you to go home, and I want you to look Shirley in the face, and I want you to ask her this question. How good a husband am I? Would you give me a grade on the scale of 1 to 10? How good a husband am I? And with a twinkle in his eye, he would say, and pastor, if you get a 5 out of 10, consider yourself lucky. See, the point is, it doesn't matter whether I think I love her, whether I feel like I love her, if she doesn't feel that, it's as if it doesn't exist. In the same way, ladies, I would ask you, challenge you. Just as the husbands ask the wife that question, for the, for the wife to ask the husband, 
and just you can just cook it down to this. Do you feel like I respect you? You can say all day long, well, of course I, expect my, I respect my husband. But if he doesn't feel it, it's no different than him saying, well, of course I love her, but you don't sense that you stack up on the priority. For you to say, well, of course I respect him, but he gives you a two or he gives you a three. Could I just, could I just encourage you? Work on that. Now, some way or another in the relationship, you got, it's got to be safe enough to be able to answer honestly, right? It's got to be safe enough to answer honestly. Well, I'll give you a 9.9, honey. I'll give you a 9.9. And then just run around and run him down for business choices and, and clothes, clothes, clothes choices, you know? She, does, she doesn't do that. She'll do that to my face. What were you thinking? Put that on. You know, I, I, I got some of my brothers that said, well, we just dressed in the dark. When we look good, they said, well, Shirley must have dressed you. Your wife must have dressed you. I can't, I can't get that. But to work on it and to be able to ask the question, to ask the question, how do you feel? I, I'm, the, 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 about, about me as a husband loving you or me as a wife respecting you. I'm just saying to you, we can't prove it. But because of the level of priority that David had made of Michael in his life, he hadn't forget. He had six other wives. Why would he not just forget about her? Just let her. She was married to another man. I want her back. She mattered to him. Her opinion of him mattered to him. Ladies, I just want to tell you, you don't realize how powerful your words are. You don't realize how powerful your encouragement can be. You don't realize how, how powerful and painful and crippling your, your, your words that, that cut and knife and belittle, belittle your husband. On the same way, men, I don't think we have even the slightest idea of, of what it means for us not to establish it clearly in the, in the lives of our, of, of our wives how important they are to us, and that if push comes to shove, she gets the choice instead of it being, well, if there's any time left over. It got real quiet in the room, and I'm going to be sitting across the lunch table looking at somebody right here when we get done. And I, but I, it's, tr- it's, tr- it's true. What, what, if, what if a part... What if a part of was causing this dark night of the soul to work in David was, the, was, was this thing of the one that I want to respect me the most, the one that, I, that, that, that I've tried to prove that I care about? She, she doesn't. She, she doesn't. She's just written me off. I don't measure up. I don't count. I'm, I'm unworthy. That may not have been the whole piece of it. But when David's standing around, he's looking, he sees this woman taking a bath. He has to ask who she is. This isn't like it's a standing relationship and he's known her. What if it could very well be in the sexual act? If, if, that's why men will pay for the sexual act. It's paying for respect. It, it, it's a demonstration of the, the, the man dominating the woman and the woman, the woman submitting to, respecting. Even though it's cheap, even though it's plastic and phony, it carries some kind of symbolism. So, so he just, he's just looking for somebody beautiful. He's the king. She's younger. I'll have her. 
and I'm going to get me some respect. Can't prove it, but what if? The other piece of that, the other part, is when you look at the list of all the battles and how long David had been in the fight, it could have been he just had gotten worn slap out of the fight. One war after another. Masses of people being killed. One right after another. Instead of him being out with with the armies, which was his usual place, he's staying back. Was it because he was tired? Was it because he was withered because the ache closest to home to him for, for respect wasn't there? Whatever it was, whatever it was, it created some kind of massive moral slide into the miry clay, into the horrible pit. So Bathsheba comes to his room. She ends up getting pregnant. Pregnant told you the story about how his plan to make it look like this is a soldier and this is just a natural way that things happen and she's pregnant, the soldier came home. That didn't work and so he, has to, he ends up killing, having Uriah killed. But look at this. It is said that there was about a year that went by from the time of, of David's committing the sin against Uriah and with Bathsheba to the time that this happened. Look at the end of verse 20, or, or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 27. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her, Bathsheba, to his house after the time of mourning for Uriah, her husband's death. He brought her to his wife, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then the Lord sent Nathan, Nathan the prophet, to David. And he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did the thing, this thing and had no compassion. Because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. 
Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. The consequences for sin are not always immediate. It's not as if the Lord starts a stopwatch with a split-second interval on it. It would be years, if not a couple of decades, before Absalom, Absalom, one of David's own sons, would rise up and foment a rebellion against David would march on Jerusalem and David and his whole household would have to flee Absalom. This was years later, folks. It wasn't an immediate thing. But the way of the transgressor is hard, the Scriptures say. You reap what you sow. David had sown these seeds and it would take a while, but the harvest would, would come in. It, it, was, it would happen to David exactly the way Nathan the prophet said it would happen. But watch this. The first child died. Bathsheba's first child died. Verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, went into her, lay with her, and she gave birth to a son. And he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him. Loved who? Loved Solomon. And he sent word through Nathan, and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. The word Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. Now folks, how big is God to you? I'm not talking about can he create an endless universe. I'm talking about how big is God as a term in terms of how big is his mercy? How big is his mercy? Some would look at this and would say, how could it ever be that God could bless this union between David and Bathsheba because it started in adultery? 
God could never bless something that started in adultery like that. Well, you say that, and then you read the Word. You read the Bible. Instead of trying to interpret what God would say, let's just look at what he says. Bathsheba went in, went, gave birth to a son and named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And they added this part to Solomon's name, Solomon Jedediah. Solomon, which would be peace, a derivative of shalom for peace, but that name given from heaven with regard to this son out of an adulterous union. If you call it, if you keep that, that it has to be an adulterous union because it started that way, what do you do with this union and this son being named the beloved of the Lord. How do, you, how do you get from the sin of it all to the place of blessing? Could we find our way back to Psalm number 51 for just a minute? Here's, here's, here's how we pass through the dark night of the soul, the dark moral night, spiritual night, emotional night, dark night of the soul, into the place of light, into the place of blessing, into the place of freedom. We have to walk down through David's steps. And if somebody's listening today and, and shame has covered you and, 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 and wishing you, you had never done what you did and you found yourself in a place that, that, that you didn't know how you got there, but you were there and you made choices and you hurt people and you, and you maybe ruined lives in a sense. What do I do now? Can I ever know the mercy of God? The answer is yes. But look at these steps. Look at how David wrote it. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion. Blot out my transgressions. In other words, Lord, I don't deserve your mercy. You don't, you don't have any obligation to blot out my transgressions before on your ledger where you keep up with things, but I'm asking you to. I'm casting myself upon the mercy of God. I cast myself upon the compassion of God. It starts there, that somehow you know that the Lord knows Nathan was told by the Lord the name Uriah and Bathsheba. The Lord told the prophet. It wasn't wasn't common talk among the troops or in the city. The Lord gave the name to Nathan. The Lord knows. When you know that the Lord knows and we're standing before him absolutely naked, there's no makeup, There are no fancy clothes. There are no $1,000 boots. There's no title. There's no bank account that can cover the fact that I am completely naked before the God who knows everything there is to know about me. That's where I start. That's where I stand. No excuses. No blaming it on somebody else. Owning it. 
owning it. My sin. My transgression. Now, well, I wouldn't have done it if she hadn't done it. I wouldn't have done it if that hadn't happened. Forget that. You're still in the dark night of the soul if you're still talking that way. It is, Lord, I'm completely open before you. And I'm asking you to cleanse me of my transgression. It goes on. Spend some time on this. For I know my, look at verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That word ever means continually, constantly, perpetually, without any interruption. My sin is continually, constantly before me. I hadn't been able to drown it out. I hadn't been able to get so busy that I forget about it. You know you're on the way out of the dark night of the soul. When what got you into the dark night of the soul, you can't ignore. And you're able to say, Lord, I am guilty. I have done this. It was my choice. It's ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so that you are justified when you speak and you're blameless when you judge. They've said, I deserve everything I get. I deserve it all. I'm guilty. The problem with so much of our culture is we don't want to call it what God calls it. We call adultery an affair, okay? We, we, we got names for stuff. There's no freedom. There's no release. There's no victory and power in the Spirit of God filling you until we confess, we say what God says about the things that we've done. Stop blaming it. Stop glossing it over. Stop trying to put hot sauce on it and make it taste a little better. Call it what it is. Behold, I was, he speaks of his own conception and so forth. Verse 6, behold, you, you desire truth in the innermost being. You, you, you desire firmness, stability, faithfulness on the inside of me. Lord, I'm, and I'm not faithful. I'm not stable. I'm not solid. In the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop. It's a cleansing herb, and I shall be clean. You got to cleanse me, Lord. I got dirty hands with dirty soap, and I'm just, I'm just keeping myself dirty when I'm trying to clean myself up. I need you to wash me. I need you to take whatever it takes by the power of your blood and the power of your name. I need you to wash me because me taking baths isn't getting it done. Purify me. Purify me. You do it, Lord. You do it. You do it. I can't. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Folks, that's an amazing word. Blot out all my iniquities. It means depravity, it means perversion, and it, it includes crimes. Blot out in your mercy 
all my sickness. I did what I did to Bathsheba because I'm sick. I did what I did to her husband because I am depraved. I am sick to the core. Depravity. Depravity. Now, I know, I know on a Sunday morning we're all trying to get a little happy. Well, let's, you know, let's just feel better about it. This is about feeling better. But this is about the way out. This is about a future and a hope. Call it what God calls it. Admit the place of being trapped. Admit the place of not being able to purify your own heart. And cry out to the Lord. Cast yourself upon the mercy of God. And he has a way of hearing the cry of a broken heart. He has the heart to respond to that kind of a cry. And you go on and on and on. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. And then he says in verse 17, see, this is, the, this is the future for something that started out wrong. David did not divorce Bathsheba. He stayed married to Bathsheba. They had children together. But here's why the Lord could bless it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Broken of his sin, broken before the Lord. Contrite means ground and crushed so small that they're not even grains of sand capable with enough edge of stacking one on top of the other. The sacrifice of God in the face of sin and wrong is that our hearts have been crushed, our hearts have been broken, and we're crying out to the Lord from that place. Not from the place, well, God, if she hadn't done that, if he hadn't done that, if he, I wouldn't be where I am. Dude, dude, you are where you are because you chose some things. You could have walked away and not listened to some stuff, but you bought into it some way or another, dark night of the soul, whatever you want to call it. Own it. Own it, and then there's freedom to be released from it. Oh, my. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God. Thou wilt not despise. I want to leave you with one other passage that's just so wonderful. It's amazing. This will blow your hat in the creek. This will cause your socks roll up and down inside your Tony Lama boots when this goes 18 inches. Seek the Lord. It's Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord. Look for the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And then he says this, verse 7, Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way. He's been walking down a wicked way. Abandon that way. Abandon it. Forsake it. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts, the unrighteous man has been thinking a particular way, drawing conclusions, making decisions on the basis of those unrighteous thoughts. Let him forsake those thoughts and let him return to the Lord. And he, the Lord, will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The word for compassion means he will have compassion. He will soothe him. He will cherish him. He will love him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. 
For my thoughts, here's the connection. Though what has just been said is connected with the next clause. For my thoughts, the Lord says, are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and, your, and, and my thoughts past your thoughts. The context for that, those higher thoughts and greater ways, the direct context, look at the verse. It's in the Lord's ability, his way to pardon and to forgive and to show compassion. He shows compassion unlike what people are capable of showing compassion like. He is able to pardon and forgive, whereas we're still remembering what they did. The Lord knows what they did, but he's not holding what they did to be that which is going to knock out of opportunity what he wants for them, where there is a crushed and broken spirit and a confession of the sin. Can I end with this? I know I told you I was going to quit a few minutes ago, but it's your fault. You're just listening to it. Blame it on you. Psalm 37. One of the last psalms David ever wrote. After he had been through all this, after that dark night of the soul nearly destroyed him, years had passed. He's an old man looking back on the younger years and across his life, and he says, he says this, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. No, no, no matter how far off you've gotten, you return and then you begin to delight yourself in the Lord and he has a way to open back up the desires of your heart that he wanted to bless you with all along, that he'd wanted to encourage you by and confirm you by all along. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Lord, thank you for our time. Thank you for these moments together. I pray that what needs to be remembered, you will cause us to walk ahead, walk away with this fixed in our hearts and strong in our spirits, encouraged that your hope has ways of finding us when we are willing to seek you, look to you, allow the truth of what we've done and who you are to operate within us without any restriction. We cry out for your mercy, Lord, great is your mercy, and we bless you for that. Thank you for this time in your word. Use this, bless this where it needs to go. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.